0: welcome to the all of christ for all of life podcast presented by canon press this week's episode is a talk by cr wiley entitled man of the house from grace agenda 2019. well i'm uh, glad to be back with you i'm a little more awake for those of you who were uh, here yesterday for the uh, disputatio, i shared with you the adventure we had uh, in our, our journey here to Moscow We uh, took a little a little hiatus in Denver for about 10 hours that kind of gives you an idea we didn't get to uh, to Moscow until until about 2 in the morning, which was uh, 5 o'clock our time so we I, I usually get up to 5 so I was awake for 24 hours and uh, But anyway, I, I'm feeling a little better well, uh, I thought I'd say a couple of things before I, I begin my talk proper. I, I imagine that that the uh, the notice about my talk uh, at the University of Idaho uh, has uh, uh, you know created an interest in what I'll be talking about. And it, this is one of those things where the people who are are going to uh, voice their uh, their objections to the content of the talk before they've heard the talk, uh, I think they're going to be uh, kind of let down because I'm not actually going to talk about it, some of the things I think they assume I'll talk about. The, uh, basically, the heart of what I have to say is something you've been hearing you know, uh, through some of the sessions that we've had, and really, Nate got into it last night. It's basically the danger of over-nurture. When, when you over-nurture, uh, what you end up creating is dependency and incompetence. And it's, a, like a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not really a good thing. <laughs> and it's kind of toxic when you over-nurture. Basically, that's the talk. And it's going to have some anecdotes. And I'm actually going to use uh, P.D. Eastman's little picture book, Are You My Mother? <laughs> So it, this is like really you know, softball. I mean, <laughs> it, it would be really hard to get a snippet of something I'll say tomorrow and, and blow it up into some kind of crime against humanity or crime against women or something like that. But uh, I, I'm not, I wasn't surprised by sort of the response. I, I went to Harvard Divinity School. And uh, so I, I lived in Cambridge for a decade. Uh, I lived on Cape Cod. I I live on the East Coast, where, you know, um, pretty much everybody uh, thinks differently than me. (laughs) So, you know, none of this is taking me by surprise. And uh, but nevertheless, I certainly uh, could use the prayer. You know, if you if you uh, remember that event, I I, you know I, I I'm not looking to make a statement about me or anything like that. I'm actually trying to say something that I think is true. And wherever there's truth, uh, there's the potential for something good to come out of it if somebody is willing to accept the truth of what you say. Doesn't mean everything I'll say necessarily is uh, absolutely perfect at the end of the matter. But uh, anyway, it's, it's not intended to be Uh, something that harms, it's intended to be something that helps. But how many people have tried to help people and were rejected and accused of of trying to harm? Well, there you go. (laughs) I think you know what what we're dealing with here. Anyway, uh, I also want to say that the nature of my talk right now, uh, based on what Doug had to share, I I want to uh, sort of uh, put my caveat up front the the thing I'm about to talk about could lead you to believe that you could kind of engineer perfect outcomes, if you if you understand what I mean. And what Doug had to say about God's grace is absolutely right. Uh, in terms of you know putting my my family on the table, so to speak, you know sort of in the uh, in the spirit of physician heal thyself. <laughs> You know, how did our kids turn out? Well, <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about that, but we kept our kids by the grace of God. And uh, I owe a great deal uh, to my wife, who's here, uh, for that. But, uh, but we both owe the Lord uh, for uh, the outcomes. And um, so I, you know, just underscore the stress that Doug placed on God's grace. That's absolutely right. Well, uh, I'm going to uh, going to begin now for the talk proper, and uh, the, the name of this talk is "Against the Recreational Household." So that's the that's the title of the talk. Now, there may be some things that, if you were here for the disputatio uh, yesterday, there'll be some things that you you'll hear again. But I, but Doug brought out the fact that sometimes it's good to hear things more than once. <laughs> and so hopefully you won't find it tedious once upon a time the economy lived at home households were for work and the people who lived in them were put to work there was the there were the family farms and in those days all farming was family farming fathers led the way and wives and children and sometimes even grandparents and hired hands all joined in, and each did what he could. There is that marvelous scene at the end of Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. After the bandits have been defeated and the work of the samurai is done, the whole village is back to work in the rice paddies. Men are beating time on drums and everyone is singing. Women are rhythmically shoving seedlings into the muck and all the children are toting and fetching. It's an image of men and women and children working together harmoniously as we seldom see in the modern world. And it wasn't just farmers that worked at home. Artisans did too. Bakers, smiths, cobblers, they all had their storefronts, but those hid the workshops in the back and upstairs was for sleeping and eating and playing and all those things we now call family time. Their houses reveal that it wasn't all work, but work and leisure were separated more by time than by space for most people. There were the rhythms of the day and the year, and for the children of Abraham, especially the week. One day in seven was set aside for attendance at God's house, and offerings were brought in and the children sat down at the Lord's table to eat spiritual food. It wasn't heaven on earth. There were rivalries, impieties, rebellious sons, unfaithful wives, tyrannical fathers, and so forth, but we still have all those. So let's not disparage what they had and we've lost. So in the beginning, it was all in the house, the whole economy. I put it this way because the economy was more than work. It was an order. The word economy, as some of you know, is a compound word that comes to us from the Greek oikos, meaning house, and nomos, meaning law. An economy was the law of the house, a law to be observed by all and overseen by the paterfamilias, the father of the family. Almost no one thinks of the economy in these terms today. For most people, the economy doesn't even live at home. It's moved out into the open market, gross domestic product, has no connection to domesticity and even domiciles except as new housing starts of course. And if the economy has anything for houses to do it's largely extracurricular after hours and consumption. You know if you look up households uh, you know in Google you're going to get a lot of marketing information how to how to market your business to those consumers who live in those households. There's something else to remember now. Throughout the world, in in both the East and the West, households were religious institutions. This shouldn't surprise us. The inclination to treat religion as just another discrete human activity alongside others, like child care or birding, (laughs) is a modern one. But households served the gods, and connecting houses to the gods were the ancestors. This meant that households were part of something very large. They were the low rung of a ladder that reached all the way up to the heavens. In Rome, household piety was the binding cord that held the republic together, and it wasn't a private or exclusively inward thing it was the practice of paying respect, at acknowledging one's debts. It wove through every social obligation and ideally through every heart. But even when a heart was slow to feel it, it was still required. Debts had to be paid, whether you felt like it or not. And it was the responsibility of the paterfamilias to practice piety and require it of everyone in his house. Now I used to be a college professor. I taught philosophy and I, you know, my students weren't all Christians, uh, uh, and, but they knew that I was a pastor. I remember one time a woman asked me in class, she said, why should I bring my child to church? Why should I make my child go to church? And I said, so he can say thank you. Profound. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like when your little kid gets something you know, and you say, and what do you say? What do you say? Mar, no, no. (laughs) You say, thank you, thank you. We have to teach children how to do that. Now, when it came to Christians, they had more in common with their neighbors than you might suppose. There was the fifth commandment, of course, honor your father and mother, but the language of household piety runs right through Colossians, Ephesians, and the pastoral epistles especially. By the way, Josephus, And his work, you know, Jewish writer explained, hey, you know, we we Jews and you Romans, right, we're on the same page with this piety thing. (laughs) He said, This is one of the places where we excel. We're really good at piety. So what distinguished Christian households wasn't piety. Everyone was supposed to be pious. What distinguished Christian households was the confession, Christ is Lord, not Caesar. That's the difference at the top of the ladder there's Christ not Augustus And this brings me to the biblical teaching on the origin and nature of the household now as a caveat or another caveat or a qualifier here 19th century thinkers like Freud and Feuerbach said that the confession I believe in God the Father Almighty is merely a projection of a childish longing for security in a hostile universe but the apostle paul said it actually works the other way around we have fathers on earth because we have a father in heaven here he is in ephesians 3:14 through 15 he said for this reason i bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named so according to paul Fathers and mothers and families in general mirror a larger reality. It isn't humans that project up, it's God who projects down. Materialists don't see it this way because they think that we live in a ranch-style cosmos, but just about everyone in the ancient world believed that we live in a colonial-style cosmos with a lower level called Earth and an upstairs known as the heavens. In Genesis, we're told that God made the heavens and the earth, and according to that story, we were made to live on the lower story. And it's on that level that God formed the first man from the soil. Adam, by the way, sounds like the Hebrew word for soil, so you could say that Adam was literally an earth man. Then he's given a job, take dominion and tend a garden. To help him in his work, he's given a wife. And she's taken from his side. But when they reunite, they become one flesh. Paradoxically, this doesn't take them back to one. It can even make them three. Naturally, I'm talking about children. It could be even more than three. But their union makes them fruitful in every way because, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one because they have a good return for their toil. So the man and the woman were meant to work together. This is what uh, it meant to take dominion. It's how they made the world their home, as is marvelously implied by the Latin domus, which means house, and is the basis for the word dominion. So what happened? I've just described a lost world. How that world was lost is a well-known story among people that care to know, but it's remarkable how few people actually care to know it. Generally, we're told that this is the story of progress and that nothing was lost that was worth keeping anyway. Accordingly, it's progress that gave us the Industrial Revolution and the revolution in thought that preceded it, and those revolutions drove productive work out of the house and into the workplace Initially, whole families moved into the factories. You've seen the pictures. But the horrors of those dark satanic mills, as William Blake called them, and the nostalgia for the domestic economy sent the women and children back home. But the men never returned. Now, there is an upside to this. Economies of scale, the division of labor, the harnessing of power that never could have occurred in a household economy. They gave us automobiles and air conditioning and antibiotics And I confess, I like those things, and I want to keep them. But everything comes at a price, and these things have cost us something. Just so you know that I'm not making this all up. uh, Here's something from my friend Alan C. Carlson's book, Family Cycles, Strength and Decline and Renewal in American Domestic Life, there's a mouthful, from 1630 to 2000. And and this is a quote that contains some quotes, so it's a little bit complicated, but uh, I'll try to make it easy to follow. So, quote, in 1930, 1930, President Herbert Hoover created the President's Research Committee on Social Trends. Its 1933 report featured a chapter on family, authored by University of Chicago sociologist William Ogburn. He contrasted the old family system, which had been quote, the chief economic institution, the factory of the time, the main education institution, end of quote, with a new order where, quote, the factory has displaced the family, end of quote. Gone from the home were the array of activities that had defined the subsistence family economy. Sewing, canning, baking, laundering, most cooking, healthcare, childcare, care for the elderly, security, education, amusement, recreation, and religious activities. All had passed or were passing to industrialized, organized entities, be they corporate, state, or charitable in nature. American homes were, quote, merely becoming parking places, end of quote, for parents and children who spend their active hours elsewhere. That's the end of the quote. So now you know, as early as 1933, the federal government thought of your home as a parking place. What are the consequences of this, for this? To make our, our modern babel where everything is possible, we've had to deconstruct the world. And since we're, in, we're included in that, we've deconstructed human beings. We've had to in order to build our stairway to the stars. Sadly, to reach the heavens that we can see, we've had to trade in the heavens that we cannot see. Questions such as, is it true? Is it good? Is it beautiful? What does God say? Have been replaced by, does it work? The human form no longer informs us, since we'd rather it be without form and void. Women no longer look to their bodies to find a purpose to serve. Men increasingly don't either. Now we're suspended in mid-air, cut off from transcendent values and even our own bodies, carried along by every wind of doctrine, blowing from places like Harvard and Wall Street and Hollywood. And this is taken for freedom, but it's not. Most of us are like moats that float around until they are absorbed by huge organizations. Then we are assigned minuscule tasks. This is one of the reasons why we look for meaning in our off hours, and it is why our homes have been transformed into recreation centers, which perversely have fewer members and more floor space than ever. Ironically, when the economy moved out of the house, some people believed it would be good for marriage. Since households no longer served a practical purpose, marriage could focus on romantic concerns. There was a whole literature that sprang up in the early 20th century on that very theme. But what actually happened? As we should have guessed, there have been unintended consequences. Let's just look at five of them. First, marriage is now a lifestyle choice. Hardly anyone calls it the foundation of our society anymore. Instead, it's a matter of taste. Apparently, and, and apparently, fewer people have a taste for it these days, if the numbers can be trusted. Across the world, the average age of a person getting married continues to go up as the percentage of people getting married goes down. I was just listening to a podcast produced by First Things and Friend of my name, Mark Bauerlein, was interviewing a guy who's doing some research on this. And I believe in most of Europe now, uh, when it comes to the percentage of people who are married by the time they're 30, it's like around 20% in most countries. Think about that. You know, the window for childbearing has gotten pretty narrow at that point. At least if you want to have a child in wedlock people are also experimenting with marriage. There's so-called gay marriage, or gay mirage. <laughs> uh, but that's almost passe, right? There's a polyamorous marriage now, and open marriage, and marriage to vegetation. I, I read about a woman that married a tree, and marriage to inanimate objects. I read about another woman that married a bridge. I'm not making this up. I'm But I could go, and I could go on, but this is, it's getting tedious. And many churches are eager to bless all of this. Since God loves us unconditionally, she blesses everything. And even ostensibly conservative churches focus more on emotional satisfaction than on the tasks that marriage historically performed. And if you don't know what I mean, just pick up you know, just about any book on marriage from the evangelical press, with the exception of Canon Press. (laughs) Now uh, two, children are increasingly useless. And I mean that in more than one sense. Because we don't know what children are good for, we're having fewer of them. Fertility is plummeting across the world. And this is greeted as something to celebrate by humanitarians except in places where they're actually feeling the effects of it. In Japan, for instance, the population declined by 449,000 last year. I think they have a different perspective on this. They're, They're thinking about robots in a different way than I think most of us think about robots. They really do think of them as the replacements for kids. Besides being expensive, talking about kids, they're likely to hurt your feelings. And dogs are less expensive, and they're always happy when you come home. So now we have dog moms and chicken moms. And But even when people manage to have children, they treat them like pets, things to lavish, be lavished upon and, and not depended upon. And like a self-fulfilling prophecy, when these children reach adulthood, often they can't be depended upon. So, three, post-familialism, this is a term that was new to me, maybe you've heard of this trend, post-familialism is on the rise. Since marriage and children are more trouble than they're worth, more and more people are just opting out of family life. Something has emerged that would have been considered an absurdity in the ancient world, the single-person household. I see it especially with middle-aged women that work for large corporations. Many of them are divorced. By the way, 70% of the people that file for divorce are women. Apparently, their marriages weren't as emotionally gratifying as they thought they should be. And since many of them have exchanged a family for career, their social needs are met at work. And I'll let you guess what the cats are for. Rather than challenge this or even question it, many evangelicals, especially in coastal cities, justify it, citing 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and the Apostle Paul's reflections on the advantages that he enjoyed as an unmarried apostle. And this has coalesced with the gay but celibate Christian movement, and the result has been a downgrading of marriage to God's second best for you. Have you heard this stuff? Four, we're sliding into socialism. Concurrent with these things and acting as both a cause and effect, we see the growth of the welfare state and a push for socialism. It's an effect because people don't have families to fall back on. Think about it. If you had no one to fall back on, you'd need a very big government. And it's a cause because people think they can always fall back on the welfare state and naturally this leads to free riding in the near term because the incentives encourage it. But in the long run, the situation is unstable and unsustainable. When more and more people depend on a system that has fewer and fewer people paying into it, eventually things go bust. And we're seeing that around the world. Things are going bust in places you never would have thought they'd go bust, like Finland. Finally, Christians are losing an ability to even think like Christians. The language of our faith is largely drawn from the productive household. God the Father, the only begotten Son, joint heirs with Christ, a bride adorned for her husband, the marriage supper of the Lamb. All these things tell us what the faith is and how to live it. What is Christianity left with when we no longer live in households? I think we're beginning to see it. We're left with a personal relationship with an inner friend and spiritual friendships at work and at church where everyone must be affirmed and no one can be depended upon. So what to do? The situation is bleak but not hopeless. What we need is twofold. We need to recover a transcendent point of reference and we need to get back to the productive household. What I have to say from here on in this talk has more to do with the second of those things. I've I've addressed the need for a transcendent point of reference in my new book, uh, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, which Canon Press has available here. But since uh, my first book, Man of the House, is the reason I was asked to come, I thought probably I should talk about that. So that's what I'm going to do. Uh, for the next little while and I'm gonna focus on two aspects or two things I ad- addressed in that book and they are work and productive property. So that means I'm not gonna be talking about love languages <laughs> or anything like that. Instead, I'm gonna talk about making a household productive. And by the way, it's my conviction that if you do it right, the emotions will come tagging along for sure. And since this is a practical matter, I'll hardly—I'll—I'm uh, I'll, sorry. And since this is a practical matter, I'll talk about uh, what we've done at my house. Not because we fully lived up to our ideals—you know, hardly anyone ever lives up fully to their ideals. Ideal ideals are for striving for. Uh, I'm doing it in order to show you that even uh, uh, though you don't fully succeed, it's worth the effort. So let's talk a little bit about work. Man of the House is essentially a blend of the Bible and an ancient manual on productive households from the 4th century by Xenophon. Those things in a smattering of Latin and Aristotle thrown in for flavor. The things that I recommend in that book would have been considered common sense to people just 200 years ago and and it would have been second nature to people like the apostle Paul and Seneca. But they're news today for the reasons I've already mentioned. Let's begin with the most politically incorrect thing that Xenophon said. He said that when it comes to work, men and women have different roles. Astounding. This is what may get me shot on Monday night. Now here's what he goes on to say, and everyone takes this wrong. Everyone takes this wrong. Even people with PhDs get this wrong. It's so obvious because Xenophon tells you exactly what he means when he says this, and I'll explain exactly what he said in a moment. But this is what he said. Men were made for working outside the house, and women were made for working inside the house. Now, there you go. The thing to note here is the word house, not the words outside and inside. He didn't mean that men go to work and women don't. What he meant was that men really should work outside, like in the sun and the rain and the cold, because they're more physically suited for that kind of work. That's what he meant. And that women should work inside, because they like being warm. (laughs) There's another tremendous bit of news I'll have to share on Monday night. Uh, Anyway, so there's a natural division of labor that makes men and women depend upon each other. For Xenophon, independence was not the goal. Interdependence was the goal. You know, that phrase, I don't think I could live without you, we don't really mean that. That's sort of like a sweet thing to say. It's a hallmark moment kind of thing to say. But Xenophon said, you really should mean that. I literally could not live without you. I would die because you do things I don't know how to do. And, and you feel the same way probably. At so least I hope you do. So when it comes to children, they should be brought into the work. This is xenophon, but it's also the assumption in the scriptures. They should be brought into the work as soon as possible. The idea that childhood is a long period of preparation for the labor market somewhere outside the house sends the wrong message to kids. It says that important things happen someplace else. It also says you have nothing important to contribute. In other words, you're you're literally useless. Sure, when it comes to the economy outside the house, keep them out of the factories and that stuff. But when it comes to homework, and I mean real work at home, put them to work. Now as a pastor, I have something of an advantage when it comes to this because a parsonage generally works on the old model. Although I've seen people who are trying to advocate for a kind of approach to pastoral ministry that puts this model behind us. But uh, the old model is the model model I'm describing. And Martin and Katerina Luther were exemplars of what a productive parsonage looks like. Historically, The work of the pastor's wife in Protestantism was integral to the work of the parsonage. And children were included too. And the expectation of every pastoral search committee until just yesterday was that the pastor's family would work together, not just the guy with the day job. You know, I've been through that process a few times. Second question after, you know, where'd you go to school is, what is your wife like? Uh, It's a good question. So consequently, there are external reinforcements that promote pastor, wife, and children working together productively in the church, which is God's house. And I suspect that this is one of the least studied features of pastoral ministry, even though I believe that it is one of the most important. I know that for my wife, her service in the church is a source of great joy and meaning. Now, this may be more difficult for you. But it really doesn't have to be, if you really do believe in the priesthood of all believers, your household can be a kind of parsonage. Not necessarily limited to the work of the church, though. But this is only one of the ways that we work together in our our house. So, I'm an author, I think you know that, uh, but I'm also an illustrator, and I'm a traveling speaker, you know that. I was also, for a decade, a college professor. My wife is a piano and music instructor. And a hairdresser, and uh, we have studios in our home, and people are coming through constantly, like five to ten people on most weekdays. So our dog, which is a very yappy sort of mix between a corgi and a Jack Russell Terrier, is just like always on edge. (laughs) You know, every sound. Then when we bring him out, and he's with the with with the, uh, you know. The, uh, the rest of the wolves, then he settles down. Our household has also served as an incubator for the businesses that our kids have started. My oldest son and his wife currently live in Madagascar where he's producing videos and recordings of indigenous musicians for African Inland Mission. But before that, he worked for Wheaton College and for Fuller Seminary as an audio engineer. And he's quite good, but he got his start at home. My second son is a steel worker Uh, But in the evenings, he's a blacksmith and a toolmaker. And our daughter, when she's home from college, is a baker and a pastry chef. This past, a couple months ago, or a month or so ago, she just said on Facebook, I'm going to be home. And she had, what I can't know how many orders came in for food. She was like baking the entire time she was home. She made a lot more money doing that than when she works for the, uh, the coffee shop that she works at. So anyway, there's a lot of this stuff that goes on in our house on an ongoing basis. And we're all kind of, you know, helping each other out in different ways. But basically what we have is sort of what you would call a skunk works, an incubator. So we take care of sort of the common cost, insurance, heat, light, those kinds of things. We all pitch in. <laughs> and then we have our different things that we're doing. Now, I suppose the reason our kids are entrepreneurial is because they, they saw it all the time. And I encourage them uh, in their own... To, to all do their own things and to only work for other people as a learning experience, sort of, I know, paid internships or apprenticeships uh, in everything but name. But I think that the biggest thing that really impressed this on the kids, especially the boys, was our commercial real estate. At one time, we had 18 tenants. The boys helped with uh, renovating the apartments and maintaining the properties, and I, but I seldom paid them. Uh, I told them instead, these apartments will help you pay your way through college and trade school, and they did. And if all goes according to plan, someday you'll inherit them. And oh, by the way, I was also a home improvement contractor for a while, and they helped out with that. Now, all this brings me to property. And I'm just throwing these things out, you know, as examples, not things that necessarily you have to do yourself, but this is, this is the way it's worked for us. So as you can see, uh, uh, from what I've said about work, property... Is what you work with and what you work on. Now, let me say something that's that's uh, maybe it may be difficult for you to accept, but it's true. And that's this: uh, if you don't own productive property, you work for someone who does. It's just that simple. Or you work for the government. <laughs> Exhaust. Pretty much. So now, when I'm talking about uh, productive property, I'm not talking about toothbrushes or even things that you could liquidate in a garage sale. Oh yeah, we got lots of property. A whole basement's full of it. <laughs> I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about assets that can give you a living and keep on giving, everything from land that you can raise food on to intellectual property. For, my, for example, my wife uh, created a product called the 50-Day Dash, and it's a poster that you can use to chart practice time on a piano over 50 days. And you can buy it at a music store in our town. And as you know, I've written some books. Uh, that's another form of property. And as I've mentioned, we have commercial real estate and businesses. All of those things are productive property. Productive property is marvelously variegated. You could turn just about anything into productive property with hard work and imagination. Take silicon the stuff that we make computer chips from. It's sand. We've turned sand into smartphones and laptops. Amazing. Productive property is the fruit of God's image at work in us. And because we, uh, because it, because, uh, we have it, because we have been given dominion, and we exercise dominion because we have it. So isn't it stunning that there are people out there that want to take your property away in the name of the kingdom of God? These are the people that think that the phrase, they had all things in common, gives them the right to take your things. And some of the greatest crimes, here's another thing that people need to remember, some of the greatest crimes in human history were committed by people who talked all about social justice. Cultural Revolution in China, does anybody remember what the Cultural Revolution was? I'm really curious, how many people remember the Cultural Revolution? That's stunning. I mean, maybe 10% 30 million to 70 million Chinese died in the Cultural Revolution for social justice. And it isn't a coincidence that the people most given to taking your stuff also think of God's, uh, or think of marriage as God's second best for you. Common property usually goes along with common wives, as it was the case with the Anabaptists at Munster, or no wives, like the Shakers of Sabbath Day Lake. And often it begins with a little nudge of a boundary line or a phrase like spiritual friendship and a platonic relationship forms between people who are married to other people, and one thing kind of leads to another, I've seen it. When this kind of stuff comes up, my first thought is, quote, did the general resurrection happen and I missed the memo? Second question is, quote, the Ten Commandments are based on the ideas of not mine and mine, so when were those abrogated? But my third thought is, Once you've taken everything I have, you've taken my power to give anything at all. And that is the greatest theft of all, stealing the power to give. But I'm not so sure that the kingdom of God really looks like a shaker village. We've got shaker villages up my way. I don't know if you're familiar with the shakers. I don't want to get into it. (laughs) I wrote something for Touchstone about the shakers years ago. You can read that. And I have reason, But I have reason to believe that uh, something like private property will be right there in the peaceable kingdom. Remember, right after Micah tells us about spears being turned into pruning hooks, he says that every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree. That sounds like productive property to me. While it is true that greed is an idol that we should smash, the real problem in the parable of the rich fool was the man was a fool. It wasn't the bumper crop or the bigger barn. He never saw the black swan of death coming for him. Productive property does not secure your independence from the judgment of God. If anything, it should reveal to you just how dependent you are on God's mercies. But even so, it can help you secure your independence from social justice warriors. I wrote about this theme for the folks across politic uh, under the name of the anti-fragile pastor. Years ago, it was precisely because I had productive property that I could resign a pastorate in a denomination that I felt was drifting into some dangerous waters. Often when pastors face uh, the choice between paying the mortgage and obeying the conscience, the conscience becomes inexplicably pliable somehow. Productive property can help support your family as well as support your backbone. And that's what it did for me. And that's not just true for pastors, it can be true for you. Where there is dependence, there is servility. control of your livelihood, at least so far as it's possible for a person to control it, provides you with material basis for your liberty. So as long as we have, you know, the right to own things, in, in the United, and I don't take that for granted, <laughs> you know, we might find ourselves in a situation where you don't actually have the ability to own productive property any longer. But so long as we, we do, we have a material basis for our liberty. And many of the founders of our country understood this. Um they believe that productive property is what makes Republican government possible. There's a real reason they, the, the real reason they limited the franchise to property owners was this. So don't believe everything you hear about them. And the following quote uh, is again from my friend Alan Carlson again from that book Family Cycles. Quote in his book The Myth of American Individualism Barry Shane describes the various notions of liberty extant in the 18th century. Distinctive to America was a strong emphasis on familial liberty. By this was meant the ownership of sufficient real property, land, and tools to ensure household autonomy. Quote, he who would govern himself must own his own soul, end of quote, as the founder James Wilson wrote in 1774. Men whose poverty left them subject to the influence of others, quote, have no will of their own, and it is judged improper that they should vote uh, in the representation of a free state. As Shane summarizes, quote, real property was viewed as an instrumental good that made made possible familial independence. So again, I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, this is, I'm just drawing from the past, from the wisdom of, of our ancestors. Now, the last thing I have to talk about now is, you know, leaving it behind. Last of all, it does provide you with something to leave behind. And this is biblical. Proverbs thirteen twenty two reads, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Now, I have a lot to say about this, but uh, since I've uh, about run out of time, I'll keep my my thoughts short, or what I have to say short. People like to say, you can't take it with you, and that's true, and it's a good thing since you won't need it where you're going. But it is generally said in in a somewhat dismissive way as though what you do leave behind really wasn't worth much anyway. My conviction is that if it's been good for you Uh, It can be good for the people that you leave it to. Now, I've heard that proverb that I read used to justify skipping over your worthless kids so you can spoil your grandkids. Have you ever heard it used that way? But I don't think that is the point of the proverb. A household should be a line that runs through the generations. And this is about keeping the line going, not ending the family concern. So if the things that keep that line moving forward to the third generation include productive people as well as productive property, well, then you better keep the second generation in line if it's going to make it to the third. In other words, you had better keep your kids first. Now, I can't guarantee anything, but I think that by making your kids productive, that will help them make productive homes of their own someday. And if your line does come to a premature end, it may be because your kids came to think of themselves as the point of it all, rather than just part of the line that leads to the real point of it all. And of course, I'm referring to Christ. So go home, give your kids something to work on and then put them to work. And if what I've said bears any resemblance to the truth of things, you'll give your kids something worth keeping, and you'll probably keep your kids as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this week's episode, check out C.R. Wiley's book, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, at canonpress.com.